Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the All In for Citrus podcast. My name is Ivy Taylor, and we have a great program lined up this month. We decided to do something a little different this month and do a roundtable type setup with three of our guests, Tripti Bashteeth, Lauren Diepenbrock, and Megan Dudney, who are all citrus researchers at the Citrus Research and Education Center. Ernie Neff and I sit down with them and discuss living with HLB and some research updates from a recent conference in California. So we're really excited for that sit down this month. But first, here's a note from CREC Center Director Michael Rogers. On April the 2nd, the UFI for Citrus Extension Agents once again hosted the annual Florida Citrus Growers Institute at the South Florida State College in Avon Park. This year we had an excellent turnout with more than 275 growers and industry representatives that were registered to attend. And those who were present got to hear a little bit more about some updates on citrus horticultural practices to live with HLB, things such as improving citrus nutrition and also citrus weed management. And there was also a section on psyllid management, what, what growers can do right now to improve their psyllid control programs while reducing cost and the number of sprays applied. We also had a section that was an update from the IRCHLB, or the International Research Conference on Wong Long Bing, that took place earlier this year in Riverside, California. And three of our extension specialists gave updates or uh, summary overviews of the information that was gleaned from the IRCHLB meeting in California and just gave growers a taste of the high points and what, what came out of that meeting that can be used right now uh, to help manage Wong Long Bing in our citrus groves. Now, for those of you who didn't, uh, who weren't able to attend and wanted to catch up on the presentations that were presented um, at the Institute this year, uh, similar to past years, all the presentations will be placed online on the Citrus Extension Agents website uh, very soon. And that web address is citrusagents.ifis.ufl.edu. We expect that the presentations will be up about the first part of May, and as soon as those presentations are online, we'll reach out and let everybody know that they can find those there on the Citrus Agents website. You're listening to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest in citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to April's All In for Citrus podcast. My name is Abby Taylor, and I have Ernie Neff with me today, too. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. We have three University of Florida citrus researchers with us. We have Tripti Rashtith, Lauren Diepenbrock, and Megan Dudney. And they are sitting here with us all at one table, and we're going to do some a little round table type thing with some questioning by Ernie Neff. And they just did presentations at the Citrus Growers Institute um, in Avon Park. So first, we're going to start off. Each of them are going to give a little description about their presentations and what they talked about this morning. So, Tripti, let's start with you. Hi. So I covered uh, most of the horticultural and cultural practices, which included rootstock and scions, nutrition programs, uh, any cultural management that growers can do to improve the production. Um, in regards to rootstocks, um, researchers from USDA, Dr. Kimberman, Albrecht talked about 942 and 812 performing really well, even with high bacterial titer. So they suggest that's something promising. Dr. Grosser talked about UFR 17 and some of the other tetraploid 
rootstocks performing well. So there is some tolerance that people, uh, researchers are seeing as in regards to HLP tolerance. Most of the cultural practices that we talk include uh, uh, psyllid exclusion with use of a covered production system. Uh, Dr. Schumann, Dr. Ferrazzi showed their results, which our Florida growers are very well aware of, that uh, cups are working really well. And uh, we also talked about um, IPC, which is individual protective covers. Dr. Fernando Alfres presented his results, and in one year, IPC is working really well. They have not seen any HLB positive trees, whereas the untreated trees are as much as 27% infected. So psyllid exclusion is a way to go. As far as things that you can do in your open groves, uh, nutrition, uh, there were quite a few posters on nutrition. Um, and one of the general theme is uh, with foliar nutrition, the response is limited. People have looked at calcium and magnesium and uh, with calcium and magnesium foliar sprays, there are some growth parameters that are improving. The trees remain infected. So um, the message is that uh, maybe foliars are not effective and also nutrition is going to help the tree in growing better, but it's not going to eliminate sea less from the tree. Um, it is very important to have constant and balanced nutrition. You have to have the right uh, pH of the soil that was also presented in two of the presentations at IRCHLB. Right soil pH with constant supply of nutrition is working. And irrigation is important, especially for young trees. Uh, young trees uh, cannot afford any sort of water deficit. Dr. David Kedian-Pikeni showed his results. And you, uh, it's really, really important to have good irrigation program for young trees. Uh, there was also a presentation from my group on fruit drop, and we are seeing that the fruit size and fruit drop are related, and fruit size potentially is affected by water supply. So it's really important to have a good irrigation program, to have good established tree, as well as to have good quality fruit. That's right. great. Line. Thank you so much. Moving right along, Lauren, you want to go next? Sure. Uh, for the entomology talks, in particular with management of Asian citrus psyllid at IRCHLB, I grouped the topics into four major overarching themes, one being the impacts of management on, HL on ACP and HLB, uh, two is the non-crop and near-crop habitat influences on Asian citrus psyllid, three is the role of biological controls in Asian citrus psyllid management, which is used heavily in other locations and less relied upon here in Florida now. Um, and for the management tools of the future. So within those impacts on management of ACP and HLB, one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting was actually a graduate student's talk uh, looking at the role of nutrition on, on CLAS, the, the bacteria acquisition by, by nymphs of Asian citrus psyllid. And his data were very fascinating. It was only nine months of research. So what he found in those nine months is that a combination of nutrients, including copper, manganese, and zinc, worked better than those individual nutrients added, added into nutritional programs for reducing um, the ability of a psyllid to acquire CLAS, which, granted, it's nine months in, but it has some potential for the future, and hopefully in a year or two we'll have some nice data that we can then take to a field study. There was questions regarding, uh, or there was a talk over the need for continued vector management by a postdoc in Dr. Slinsky's lab. And the short story is, yes, we do need to continue management, but perhaps not at the 
level that we have in the past. So we will probably be having some altered management regimes in the near future. And this is Florida-specific data. In addition to that, there was a poster looking at flush timing for management actions. So if we can time pesticide sprays to hit flush, which is what the Asian citrus is like to reproduce on, we can actually reduce those populations pretty efficiently, with the challenge being that HLB-affected trees have a lot of off-season or off-time to flush, which makes that a really hard challenge to, to deal with. Uh, there are some advances in manipulating that flush with plant growth regulators, the potential to manipulate them by uh, watering regimes, which is a study that's going to be started really soon here by UF researchers. Um, with the non-crop habitat, we had some studies looking at how you can manage the edge of your field to reduce the, in the influx of psyllids, so between physical barriers, living barriers, and the one that was particularly interesting in that group was a talk out of Brazil where they looked at having a test grove surrounded by um, orange jasmine that was treated with a thiamethoxin drench so that the, the orange jasmine would be toxic to psyllids that tried to consume it. And they, they did that as a border around the field and then compared that to a clean field with no border and to see where the psyllids would go. And they were able to reduce the psyllid migration into young citrus groves by doing that. So they're calling this a pull and kill strategy. So that's a really interesting area where we're hoping that we might be able to move in that direction a little bit in Florida. Of course, not with orange jasmine because we're not allowed to plant that here. Um, there was some look at non-crop hosts for Asian citrus psyllid survival. Um, the short story there is that the non-crop hosts really don't do so well for survival from egg to adult although they can use it for reproduction purposes. And we started looking at, with those non-crop habitats in Florida, there's some research already starting with the row middle management and using cover cropping to alter that within row middle uh, for water and nutrient retention, potential nematode suppression, and the, the possibility to promote beneficial nematodes. And those are two projects led by Sarah Strauss, who has a team of researchers working mostly down south, and Larry Duncan, who has a team, small, much smaller team, working in the central part of the state. I uh, looked at the role of biological control, which is heavily relied upon in California and Texas and some other countries to try to keep those hot psyllids out of the field. They have psyllids. They're trying to reduce the influx of them into production fields from um, neighborhoods where they have a lot of urban citrus plantings that are known to have both the psyllids and HLB. Uh, there was also some looking at potential tools for the future one of which being the incorporation of BT toxins for the management of ACP. And this is where we might take advantage of that um, pull and kill strategy from Brazil and have Mariah Canigii plants that have the BT toxin expressed in them. That might be a really nice option. Uh, we looked at some current tools that are in deployment that we don't actually have a whole lot of parameters for. So the very last bit of, of my talk was actually more focused on um, some of the research needs that we need here in Florida. And it's pretty broad because we've, we've altered our management from previous management regimes where we didn't need to spray insecticides quite as much. So there's a lot of, a lot of research we need to figure out where to go with. And last but not least. So I, I was uh, looking at a lot of the um, pathology side of things, and there were a lot of things that were um, very California-specific, a lot of early detection um, sort of monitoring disease progress in areas where there isn't a lot of disease, um, that sort of thing that isn't so helpful for our growers. So I sort of focused on the talks that I thought were most practical and, and able to, to be brought back to Florida a bit more easily. 
I broke my talk up into things for young trees versus mature tree management in terms of the disease. And then I, I wanted to emphasize with our growers with some older work, but still relevant, um, about the uh, how trees, when they become infected early on in their, in their lives, uh, under three years in particular, they never really become uh, a tree that's profitable. They, they have a yield decline. They never really get more than about a, a box of fruit in their entire li- lifetime. Uh, whereas if a tree becomes infected much later, as it happened in the majority of Florida, um, in our mature groves, uh, the decline was quite, is quite slow and uh, it takes several years. And so that's one of the things, reasons we didn't see a big, sharp decline. But eventually the trees start to get to the point where they're no longer able to keep their production in, in and they start to go into that decline that we're seeing now. And in, in that light, I wanted growers to remind themselves how much they're spending on the investment of new trees and then how we how they should be making sure when they want to plant, you know, look around at their neighborhood, who's got abandoned groves, semi-abandoned groves, and think about that in terms of inoculum movement. Um, we can't ever think of the pathogen without thinking about the psyllid and the tree at the same time especially in the case of this pathogen where it's so hard to work with independently of either of those agents. Young trees, another thing I want growers to think about is that young trees are a huge investment. Um, Dr. Singerman, our economist at CREC, has costed out how much it costs over the first three years of a tree's lifetime on how much per tree, and it depends between whether you're planting solid set where it's about $44 a tree, uh, versus if you're only resetting, and then it depends on per tree per acre, your tree per acre, but it can vary between $48 per tree to $58 a tree. So that's a huge investment. And if you're not going to get anything out of that, you're, you're just putting yourself in a great big financial hole. And there was some work from Brazil that, that showed that, uh, they've managed, at least in their case, to get most of the commercial citrus to no longer be spreading psyllids amongst each other and having inoculum, but they're still noticing that around the edges of their their large holdings that they're being nibbled away, uh, and they were finding that this was mostly due to non-commercial citrus and mariah, uh, as Lauren was talking about. One of the things that might be of interest for um, growers is the fact that we can get much better early detection in Florida, but also Texas out of the roots about six months prior in the fibrous roots to the leaf leaves. So that's uh, six months that you wouldn't be putting any more money into a tree that's probably going to die. And so that's something, the reason to be thinking about relatively early sampling on uh, new trees in a grove. When looking at mature trees, uh, of course, here in Florida, we have high infection rates between 80 and 100% of the trees, depending on blocks. Uh, Many are showing symptoms of decline. Some are looking much better than others. But if you've got trees that are in advanced stages of decline, unfortunately, there's very little we can do to make those trees do any better. Um, and most of the things that we would suggest for mitigation are going to be targeted towards mild and moderate decline. But one of those things is the elimination of stress on root systems. And I presented some data as to why that might be what we see. And we see a stimulation of root growth um, and reduction of We see an overstimulation of root growth on trees that are infected in the uninfected portions um, and then, but then it dies very quickly, and so we end up with a a, a loss of roots rather than an increase of roots, uh, as you might expect from a stimulation. Uh, so basically, the tree's putting endless resources into root production and not into other things that we might like, like fruit. Irrigation water acidification, as Tripti mentioned, can be quite helpful um, to 
if you if you're in a situation where your growth has high pH, so above 6.5 uh, pH, uh, then then that could be helpful. But you really need to make sure that your growth meets those criteria because you can do as much harm with over acidifying your growth as you could with having pH that's too high. There was a lot of talk of various antimicrobials, uh, but nothing very conclusive. Um, there was some talk about what adjuvants and stuff might help getting uh, streptomycin or oxytetracycline into the plant, but the data was very, very preliminary. Dr. Wong from our, uh, our station CREC was able to measure the min minimum inhibitory dose, and that sounds very sort of fluting and not very interesting, but it does tell us how much it takes to kill the bacteria, or at least in the case of oxytetracycline, because it doesn't actually kill bacteria, um, it retards its growth, and so we know how much that'll take now. And it's not particularly much. It's 0.86 ppm, so it's quite low concentration, which is good. But you still need to get it into the foam where it needs to be, and they were using an injection system, which is not legal at the moment. I talked a little bit about our trials with myself and Dr. Johnson with zincoside. Uh, looking at, we were seeing a dose response in young grapefruit, which unfortunately we didn't see in the uh, Valencia, the mature Valencia that we tried, but the mature Valencia were much bigger trees, but they also were in a greater stage of decline. Um, but we did see in both situations a fruit size increase, so that's a positive thing. If you've got bigger fruit, then they're going to have more juice, um, and we're not talking about really enormous fruit, uh, normally large fruit, but, you know, things that are approaching what should have been we would normally get. And then we are sort of optimizing that based on some work that we've done um, in, in the greenhouse. We're sort of optimizing our timing regimen, so we've been applying this monthly, uh, and now we're going to try, try doing pulsed applications, so for two or three applications in a row in a short every week or so, and then waiting for a certain period of time and then coming back for the next time that there's a lot of flush or flow, flow production. And then there were some other things who have new ways to potentially uh, get my antimicrobials into the phloem, but all of that was very future research. Uh, it was very much on the horizon and beyond in some cases. I'm going to ask all of you a little bit. It seems like in hearing the discussions, I'd like all of your opinion a lot of growers have cut back on psyllid control in recent years, and I've heard that uh, the CHIMA, citrus health management areas, aren't as active as they used to be. People thought they had to control psyllids very, very well. Is this all going to have an impact on the industry as a whole, NHLB, this cutback on psyllid control? The reality is you're never going to kill all the psyllids. You can spray and spray and spray, and your neighbor might not spray once. And you're just causing those psyllids to move back and forth, increasing resistance issues. So you're actually going to drive up the cost of psyllid management if that's where you want to go. With the reduction in sprays, if we can target the timing of those sprays, that I think has a lot of really good potential for helping our industry with our growers at least saving money where they're not putting out, say, a calendar spray once every month. If you can time it, to hit those flush cycles, you're going to do more impact on knocking back the young psyllids, which are the ones that are really efficient at acquiring the bacteria, and then you're not going to have them making it to adulthood and moving around and, and keep re-inoculating trees. You're also going to see, if you actually pull back on some of those insecticides, you should see some of the beneficial insects start to reestablish. and in fact, the groves where they have done that, you can go out there and you will see spiders, you will see lady beetles, you will see predators out there. 
you get the added benefit of them doing their job and you're not killing them, which is pretty awesome. I hear um, some of the folks that grew up in citrus reminiscing about what a grove used to look like. Well, I think we're actually on the path back to that from the, from the insect side of it. There's probably other impacts that I'm not thinking about, but insect-wise, I, I think we are on the right path. And in reducing those, we'll, we'll actually see a, a long-term benefit to our growers, I hope. I don't disagree with anything what Lauren said, but I have a, a longer longer view since I've been here a little yeah. longer. Um, and when we first started combating the psyllid, you know, trying to drive its numbers down, we were in a very different situation than we are currently. Now we have widespread infection. When we first started this down this road, when I arrived in 20, 2008, we were already in, in the midst of trying to figure out what to do. And we had very low infection rates. We were talking maybe 0.1, 0.2% of the fruit. And in that case, we were really trying to just stop it in its tracks, make sure it wasn't going any further. Unfortunately, we didn't succeed where we hoped to be, and there's a lot of reasons why that may or may not have happened, and one of them was that people didn't always coordinate with their sprays, and that was one of the things that we learned sort of in hindsight that might have been very helpful to do. But now, uh, with the idea of, of, like Lauren said, of focusing our sprays, we may be able to just do as much in terms of arresting transmission with those focused sprays than we could ever do with the, you know, almost monthly sprays in some cases. Uh, So... I guess we're going to just have to wait and see how it goes over time. Um, unfortunately, we all learn this stuff in hindsight and don't don't have that good foreknowledge crystal ball to tell us what was going to be the perfect management. You have an opinion on this topic, Kirti? Well, I think um, it's, it's important to have um, a few sprays. Um, I think the calendar sprays is something that uh, we did a survey and we have seen growers are avoiding. I think they're just going for fewer sprays, more dormant sprays, or uh, timing it up with the flush, which I think makes management easier. Uh, most of the citrus production rate or your neighbor and you should be having flush about the same time. Of course, education is going to help affected but it's easy to not coordinate when you have fewer sprays otherwise when you had more sprays everybody was having their own plan so i think uh, fewer sprays might help and that's what our surveys have also shown megan something else that you said in the program that didn't really happen at the conference but i think it was kind of and you've already mentioned it that infected trees, once they get infected when they're young, they're not going to ever be profitable. Would that be your opinion then that a grower should just probably would be best off to push an infected tree before three years and reset? Uh, Yes, that is my opinion. Um, I don't know if growers are going to follow what I'm thinking, but I can at least give my rationale and let them make decisions. But um, when, when a tree becomes infected early on, there's, there's work out of Brazil that shows that it never really produces in its lifetime more than about half, about half to three-quarters of a box if it's infected under three years. That's really not what we hope for in a tree. You're never going to make your profit back when it costs you between 44 and $58 to keep that tree to that period of time. You're not going to get $58 worth of fruit to even hit even. My thought is that you should cut your losses at that point. Uh, but the other thing is that it's also an inoculum source for the rest of your grove sitting there right beside, you know, especially if you're in a solid set new new planting. You've now got an inoculum source that the psyllids are going to be attracted to. We know from Dr. Stolinski's work 
that trees that are early on in their infection cycle are attracted to uh, young trees and then they're going to disperse out into the rest of your grove. Plus, they're not putting down that root system that is so essential for keeping a healthy fruit production for the life of that tree. How many of our current growers who are still in business have trees that were infected in those first three years that they're still growing? Do we have a lot of those, or do you think most push them at some point and reset? Well, there's a wide array of, I mean, there are differences. It's very difficult to say, but what I do know is that uh, if the tree is far gone, then it, at three years, yes, it becomes infected, but how much symptoms a grower is seeing and I think uh, how many visual symptoms are there that has been one of the decision-making tool that they have used uh, previously. One thing to add to infection, uh, something that is important to keep in mind uh, or that we learned from IRCHLB, one of the posters talked about that nutrition improves the fruit quality, nutrition is good. Uh, however, if the tree is declining more than 40%, then the nutrition effect is not observed. So, so you have to keep in mind that how much decline you are observing and, and that's how you should make decisions based on cultural practices. I'm not sure how much growers are pulling out at this I think it entirely depends on the grower. Um, I see, uh, there's a grove that I drive by pretty frequently that they put in as a solid set probably two years ago and I see dead trees in the grove still. And then there's other growers that have got beautiful groves that are equally solid set and you can't find one that's infected because they've pulled them. So it entirely depends on the personal management style of a grower. Do some of those where you see dead trees throughout the grove, is the rest of the grove occasionally still doing well? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, your call, take it out. That would be my opinion. And and uh, when I was talking in my, my talk, you know, and, and just in general, uh, when growers ask my advice is survey your neighbors. If you've got a row of homeowner trees that are severely affected, you're not going to be successful in planting a block, or if the block adjacent is severely infected and you're not really doing silic control, you're not going to be successful. Lauren, something I think you alluded to a little bit about the silic control is it needed once a tree is infected, and that's been an argument over the years, and I think you said yes, but maybe not as much as in the past. Could you elaborate a little yeah, on that? Yeah, so um, Lucas Dolinsky is actually presenting work just finished presenting work about this. In, uh, in his lab, they were looking at the impacts of one-time inoculum versus, um, they called it pulsed inoculum, so every 30 days there would be a, a hot psyllids introduced to the plants uh, versus continual inoculum, so the plants would be reared in an area where they continuously had fresh hot psyllids getting put in there. And so what they saw over time is that those trees that were getting those pulsed inoculations, so periodic appearance of hot psyllids actually had better tree health at the end of the year where the one that got the one-time inoculum versus the continuous inoculum were severely declined to the point you know that tree is not going to survive. So there's something there. What it is, we're not totally sure. Um, his postdoc has done some really nice work looking at the plant defenses and we think maybe those pulse inoculations are helping prime the plant defenses. Again, we're not sure. But there is definitely something to... Uh, allowing the plant, you know, you, you're not going to be able to kill all the psyllids, but if we can knock it back, and that pulsed inoculation seems to do something that allows that plant to persist. 
these are greenhouse trials. The data are interesting. We're going to have to take it into a field setting and really tease it apart. But yeah, we, we do need we do do need to manage. Just maybe maybe we don't have to manage every month, which is, would be a really nice change for our growers. I guess one last question I had for all of you. It seems to me that the growers who have survived, a lot have not survived HLB, but those who are, have survived seem to be doing better the last couple of years. Would you all agree with that, Tripti? Well, I have seen some growers who are doing better. They are, as you said, there are few of those, but there are some who are doing better than what they were doing five years ago. Of course, I don't think they are still where they were pre-HLB, but it's better than five years ago. Yeah, we do seem to be seeing some improvement and also a little more positivity in the industry. I, I hope that that means that there's good things to come, um, that people are sort of getting a feel of maybe a less intensive management and more sort of now we're getting a better idea of the disease and the insect pests and maybe more uh, thoughtful management is maybe where we're headed towards, and that would be better for everybody. I'd love to ask more questions, but I think we're running out of time, Abby. I'm going to turn it back to you. We hope you enjoyed April's All In for Citrus podcast. Thank you to all of our guests this month, and thanks to Ernie Neff for also participating. Again, I'm Abby Taylor. Be sure to tune in for May's program to hear more updates from UFIFIS Citrus Research. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.